morning, uh, we're continuing to talk about this idea of what it looked like when Jesus kind of turned the world upside down with, with this revolutionary, just brand new teaching that he brought when he came to live here on earth. And um, I was listening, I actually came across a video a few weeks ago, and it was this comedian, and uh, she was doing this kind of bit where she was talking about an experience she'd had where she got on a plane, and it was a kind of a long journey, two, three-hour flight, and uh, she happened to be sat behind a mum with a two-year-old. And she said it was just awful because for the first hour and a half, just nonstop, this kid was crying and screaming and shouting and just, just kind of making all this noise. You know, it was just really, really, just really obnoxious. And she's like, I'm getting really sick of this kid. And then she said, all of a sudden, he stood up on his seat. She said, I could see him right there. And he said, Mommy, can I have a sweet? And she said, In that moment, I realized, oh, he's British. <laughs> he's lovely. <laughs> An hour and a half of screaming, and suddenly I heard this little British accent, and I was in love with him. She said, and that's why I could never marry a British person. She said, I would marry a British guy, and he'd be leaving his clothes on the floor, he'd be doing, you know, all these things, and I'd be trying to tell him off, and he'd say, honey, I'm sorry. And she's like, oh, that's okay. <laughs> it was funny, but let me tell you, it's, it's not real, okay? <laughs> I've tried, and it doesn't work anymore. Mrs. Jane has uh, got over this accent, and uh, it doesn't work with me. But um, I will tell you this, living here in America is fantastic, but one of my regrets is that my kids were all born here in America, so as they've grown up, they haven't had British accents, little British accents. They, uh... Now, I will say, I will say, when my, uh, when my daughter was younger, she did used to play with her uh, toys, and, and if there was a mummy and daddy, whenever they would talk to each other, the daddy always had an English accent, and the mummy had an American accent, and she does a great English accent, but uh, the truth is, uh, they don't have the British accent, but um, there are several things, uh, as you get to know my kids, that you'll see that it's like, oh, I can see they get that from Casey, or I can see they get that from you, Dave. Uh, I actually got a text this week from a member here at Connect, and she said, hey, just so you know, one of your kids was serving at the coffee bar at church last week, and I gave her my order, and she wrote on the cup, and I thought you'd be proud to see that, um, give it away, she wrote on the cup, you know exactly which kid it is now, she wrote no flavor, and she spelt it the correct way, the British way, right there, I was like, that's my girl, well done. Um, I can remember when uh, Ben, my oldest son, was in uh, Central Grand grade school here. He was maybe first grade, second grade, and we went to one of our very first teacher, meet the teacher, you know, parents evening kind of thing, and the first teacher we sat down with, she said, oh, Ben's great. We love him. He's doing really well. He's a little bit chatty, but aside from that, he's doing good. We're like, okay, so we'll get to the next teacher. She says all these different things about Ben, yeah. A little bit chatty, uh, tends to talk, gets the third teacher. He, he's kind of chatty. Talks about, at that point, after we'd heard it from the third teacher, Casey tells me, and she goes, he gets that from you. That's you. <laughs> And it's true, I'm a little bit chatty, so I get that. So. <laughs> the truth is that I don't know whether you're um, uh, flattered or horrified when someone says, man, your kids, they are just like you. But either way, it is oftentimes very true, isn't it? It makes for an easy way to figure out whose kid that is. Because very often, kids, they pick up the mannerisms, the behaviors, they look like their parents, so this week, this morning, we're actually going to be looking at a phrase of Jesus that explains how we can be identified as children of God. Jesus gives the definition of what it looks like to be a child of God. 
And I don't know about you, but as a follower of Jesus, one of my greatest desires would be for somebody to say to me, man, I can tell you're a Jesus follower. I can tell that you follow Jesus because you, you, you have the mannerisms. You, you, I can see God in you. I would love for people to recognize that I'm a child of God because they see God in my life. So we've actually been looking at some phrases that that Jesus shared. We we call them the Beatitudes, and Beatitude really just means a blessing. And he introduced this this sermon that he preached. Uh, We call it the Sermon on the Mount. And he introduced it with these eight phrases, these eight Beatitudes. And each one was unique in its own meaning. And this week, we're going to look at one where he actually defines what it means, what it looks like to be a child of God. And we find the answer... In Matthew 5, verse 9, Jesus says, Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers, because they will be called children of God. It's the peacemakers that will be called children of God. Jesus is, is kind of stating here in the middle of these phrases that he's given that the ones who look most like their father, the children of God, are the peacemakers. So this morning, I'd like to figure out exactly what a peacemaker is. Now, it's a shame, really, isn't it? Because I imagine that a peacemaker would be a really good person to have around in a time where where there was a lot of disunity and, and conflict and arguing and fighting going on in the world. But that's just not happening right now, is it? We're all just getting along great. Everyone agrees on everything, and we're just, it's a great time to be alive. So let's just pretend, you know, what it would be like to have some peacemakers in the world today. Imagine what that would be like to have someone who is a peacemaker. So as we look at this this phrase this morning, I want to just start out by maybe clarifying what a peacemaker isn't, okay? Um, When I think of peacemaker, I think of a peacemaker, not a peacekeeper, So we've heard that phrase a lot, haven't we? Peacekeeper, and and a peacekeeper is a great thing, but I think it's different than a peacemaker. I don't know about you, but when I think of a peacekeeper, I think of someone whose role it is to help, you know, two warring sides, two two people on different sides of an argument. The peacekeeper is there to kind of try and keep the peace. I think of a peacekeeper as a stationary role, someone kind of standing there, holding back both sides, maybe helping to negotiate in the middle, but a somewhat defensive stationary role. That's, That's what a peacekeeper is in my mind, someone who's there to help keep the peace. I think a peacemaker isn't so much a defensive role as an offensive role. A peacemaker is is there to do something, is to help make peace. A peacemaker is stepping towards a situation. A peacemaker is moving in the direction of a situation where peace is required. So if a peacemaker is more of a doing word, what, as followers of Jesus, is he hoping, as peacemakers that we will do. And I want to just say this this morning as well, because this is oftentimes the case here at Connect. Um, It may be that you're here this morning, maybe you're here for the very first time, you've been coming for a while. You may not yet identify yourself as a follower of Jesus. You may say, Dave, if I'm honest, I, I enjoy coming, but I'm still not sure if I'm ready to make that step. I'm still not sure if I'm ready to make that commitment to follow Jesus. We are thrilled that you are here I'm going to be honest, my prayer is that you come to discover Jesus the way that many of us have and the difference he can make in your lives. But we're going to talk this morning from the context of what it means to be a follower of Jesus and to be a peacemaker. 
But I'm hoping that some of you, if you're not yet followers of Jesus, if you haven't yet made that decision to follow him, that, that as you hear this talk of peace, that something inside of you will, will be drawn to that. There'll be something in, within you that'll say, that's, that's the kind of peace that I feel like is missing in my life right now. I'd, I'd love to experience that kind of peace in my life. I hope and pray that as we talk about what it means to be a peacemaker as a follower of Jesus, that it would encourage um, you to think, yeah, I, I would love to see that kind of peace in my life. So again, to fully understand, um, we've talked about this a little bit over the last few weeks, to fully understand what Jesus meant when he explained that the peacemakers are the blessed ones, we have to hear it through the ears of the people that Jesus was speaking to. So it's great for us to read today, but, but when he was saying this, it would have sounded a little bit different to the crowd in that day. And here's why. The crowd in that day, they were living in a time where, as, as Jews especially, they were under rule of the Romans. They were living in captivity. You know, they were experiencing this turmoil of having to pay taxes. It just wasn't a good time to be alive and to be under the rule and the leadership of this Roman Empire. And the hope they had was that for years and years and years, they'd, they'd read scripture and they'd heard prophets talk about the fact that one day a Messiah would come. This Messiah would come and, and he would establish a brand new kingdom. So for years, the only hope they had in the midst of this, this um, leadership they were under is that one day we'll be set free. One day the Messiah will come and he'll overthrow this government and he'll take over and we'll live in a new kingdom. And the way Jesus was speaking... And he would talk about this new kingdom. People were starting to get excited. They're thinking, maybe he's the Messiah. Maybe he's the one who will turn things around. Maybe he's the one who will bring the, the battle and rescue us from the Romans. Now, they were partly correct. Jesus was the Messiah. But their expectation of who the Messiah was and what he was there to do, we now understand was wrong. Their expectation was that the Messiah would come and bring conflict, would lead them in battle, would overthrow the enemy, would win the war. So I have to believe that when Jesus said that day on that hillside, blessed are the peacemakers, they had to be thinking, what? We don't need peacemakers, Jesus. We need conflict makers. We need warriors. We've got to turn things upside down here. But that's what Jesus was there to do was to turn their expectations upside down. We learned that instead of bringing conflict and war, Jesus came to bring peace. He brings peace. We're gonna see four elements this morning of, of peace through the eyes of Jesus. The first is that he brings peace. There's a verse that we often read around Christmas time. It's a verse that's in the Old Testament. It's written before Jesus was born, but it's pretty clear as we read the words of the prophet Isaiah that even though he was speaking to the people in that time, unbeknownst to him, God was using him to kind of speak ahead of this, this Messiah of Jesus when he would one day be born. Because listen to what he says in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. For to us a child is born. To us, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Hundreds of years before Jesus was born, the, the prophets were saying, when he comes, he will be the Prince of Peace. He's bringing peace to earth. They were expecting the peace that he would bring was to overthrow the government so that he could be the new king and peace would reign. But in actual fact, Paul 
a man who was a follower of Jesus after the life of Jesus, he explains the true peace that Jesus brought. Something that you couldn't have understood in the time, but now in hindsight, as we look back, we can understand. Paul writes this, For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ. God came through Jesus, and through him God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. You see, the conflict that Jesus was coming to put an end to wasn't the conflict between the Jews and the Romans. It was the conflict between mankind and God. The conflict that was caused by um, sin, by the wrong things we do in our life that separates us from a perfect God. This separation between our brokenness and God's perfectness, it was causing this division, this conflict. And Jesus says, I'm here to bring peace, to make things right. God reconciled us to us. He made things right. He made peace between man and God through Christ's blood on the cross. Jesus died in our place to bring peace between us and God. And the great news is this morning, if it stopped there, that would be wonderful news in and of itself. But not only does he bring peace, not only did Jesus bring peace to earth, he also gives peace. This morning, we can, we can be excited as we look at this verse I'm about to read that Jesus wants to give us peace. He said in John 14, 27, I am leaving you with a gift, peace of mind and heart. And the peace I give is a gift the world cannot give. So don't be troubled or afraid. Jesus is saying, if any of you are afraid, if, if you're going through troubles right now, I've got the best gift in the world for you. And it's a gift. It's unconditional, no strings attached. This is a gift I wanna give you. It is a peace that you'll never experience in this world. Nothing in this world can compare to the peace that you can find through a relationship with me. Jesus wants to give all of us this gift. And I'm gonna be honest, as a follower of Jesus, I wish that that gift that he's given, that gift of peace, it was like a light switch. We could just flick the switch and instantly receive every ounce of peace that Jesus has got to give. All the anxiety, all the fears disappear straight away and now we're suddenly full of just complete, infinite peace. Now the truth is, I've spoken to many people who will tell their story of when they became a follower of Jesus, when they became a Christian, and they'll say, you know, it's amazing because straight away I just sensed this peace that I'd never had before. So I do believe there is an instantaneous access to the peace that can only be found in Jesus, but what I've learned in my life is that that peace grows over time. That we don't get all of it at once. It's, it's something we have to learn to appreciate more and understand more. It's, it's a little bit like love. Think about it in your own relationships. It was years ago now, 26, 27, 28 years ago, that I met Casey, my wife, for the very first time. I didn't just walk up to Casey and said, Hi, I'm Dave. I love you. Should we get married? <laughs> It didn't work that way. It would have been convenient for the green cards. We could have moved things a lot quicker, but uh, no, no. I mean, we, I got the green card in the end. We're all good, so, but uh, no, I didn't just say, hey, I'm Dave, I love you, let's get married. No, our love grew over time. We started dating, and, and as we went along together in our relationship, I realized more and more how much I loved her. 
I can actually remember, it was one new year, uh, before we were married, my parents came over from England to visit, and uh, we actually went on a vacation. They were here for a little bit, and then the three of us, my mama, dad, and myself, we went down to the Florida Keys. I'd never been there before, and it was beautiful. And I mean, it's beautiful any time of year, but when it's like snowing and cold here, and you're down there, New Year's Eve in uh, the Keys, just the beautiful ocean, we were eating out some lovely restaurants, seeing some great things. But this was before cell phones. I couldn't just text Casey or FaceTime her. I couldn't even call her really. So for the week that we were down there, I realized just how much I really was missing her. Everything we did, and I had a great time with my parents, but everything we did, I found myself thinking, I wish Casey was here to do this with me. This would have been so much fun if Casey had been there. It was my Jerry Maguire moment. I realized that as fun as all of this was, it wasn't as fun because she wasn't there to experience it. I realized she completes me. <laughs> she was in first service. That line went down a lot better in first service. <laughs> she, I got the, uh, the smile on the nod. It bought me a lot of credit for the next few days and weeks. <laughs> but my love for Casey over the years has grown. And I think it's the same with our relationship with God. The, the longer we're with him, the more we're with him, the more we get to experience and understand this free gift of peace that he's given all of us. You know, in, in Jesus' time, people would have been very aware of this because it was a very important word in their language, peace. It was the word shalom. You guys have heard that word before. It's the Hebrew word for peace. And, and the, the literal definition of shalom, definition of shalom is wholeness, completeness, fulfillment, inner rest, living without deficiency or lack. This is what people in Jesus' day and age were, were seeking, that, that, that peace. Everyone wanted that same kind of peace that we still seek today. And the truth is that as we grow in our relationship with God, we get to understand that piece more, but we also need to work at it as well. Just like love, Casey and I, we, we grew to love each other enough that I knew she was the one for me. We got married, and next year we'll have been married 25 years. But the truth is, over the last 24 years, over the last, thank you, thank you over the last 24 years, we've, we've had to work at that love. We've had to work at that relationship. And in the same way, I think, when it comes to the peace that Jesus has given us, we have to work at that as well. He's given it to us, but we have to work at, at finding it and, and understanding it in our lives. Because the challenge is that peace is great, but you only really know, you only really understand how well you've grasped the peace of God when you find yourself in a moment of chaos, when you find yourself in a moment of distress. Then you understand, then you find out just how much you understand the peace that only God can give. There's a great story in the New Testament of a time when Jesus and the disciples, they went out on the boat one day into the middle of this lake. And uh, right there in the middle of this lake, and, and, and you know, these are big lakes, it's like being out on an ocean. They're out there in the middle and a storm comes up. Maybe you were around here in town yesterday when that storm came across. I mean, it was chaos. There was hail and thunder and lightning. I mean, it was just a crazy storm. Imagine that in the middle of a lake. How catastrophic that must have been. And we read that the disciples not surprisingly, we're terrified. And do you know what Jesus was doing? Fast asleep. Jesus was sleeping in the boat. Because for Jesus, peace was understanding that in the middle of the storm, I can still rest, I can still be at peace. That's the kind of peace that Jesus wants to offer us. The kind of peace that even though there's a storm raging around us, we still have that peace. And it takes work to find that. 
Because although he came to bring peace, and although he wants to give us the peace, in the midst of our storms, we still need to choose peace. It's one thing for him to give us peace in our lives. It's another thing for us to make the decision to accept that, to receive that, to choose to apply that within our situations. We have to make a decision as his followers to choose peace. Listen to what Paul said in another letter that he wrote to another church. He said, don't worry about anything. Instead, and here's the doing word, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all he's done. Then you'll experience God's peace. When when you've chosen peace, when you've done something, then you'll experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. And as great as those words are, they're even greater when you understand that Paul wrote them from a prison cell. This isn't theory that Paul's like, yeah, my life's great right now and I've got peace and you should have peace. He's like, no, if there's anyone who could talk about a lack of peace, I'm in prison. And yet still, don't worry about anything. Pray about everything. Tell God what you need. Then you'll experience his peace. We have to choose peace. And I think this This phrase I'm about to read helps us understand what it looks like to choose peace when we're in the midst of the chaos. When a problem leads you to lose your peace, don't hurry to solve the problem in hopes of regaining your peace. Regain peace in order to help you solve the problem. When a problem leads you to lose your peace, don't hurry to solve the problem in the hopes of regaining peace. Regain peace in order to help you solve your problem. Sometimes we have chaos come into our lives and we think if we can just fix the chaos, then our peace will come back. But the reality is, if we'll turn to God in the middle of the boat, in the middle of the storm and say, God, I need your peace in this situation. The problem may still be there, but our mindset, our attitude has changed completely. We'll find Jesus is right there with us in the middle of the storm. In fact, actually, it'll help us know the best way to navigate out of the chaotic situation that we find ourselves in because his peace is guiding us. And I know this is true. I'll tell you how I know. How, how many of you guys remember this guy? You know, remember this guy here on the screens? This guy right there. <laughs> Anyone know that? That's Captain Chelsea or Chesley, I think, Sully Sullenberger. Yep, he was famous for uh, uh, landing a plane in distress on the Hudson River in New York uh, several years ago and saved the lives of everyone on board. I remember watching it on the news. I remember this news flash coming up, and, and this was the first images we saw. None of us knew what was going on. We just knew there was a big commercial airliner in the middle of the river. Then as the days and weeks followed, the story started to get unfolded. We found out what happened and how that plane had ended up in the river. In his book that he wrote following this, Highest Duty, he describes the events of that day as the plane that he was the captain of hit a flock of about 20 Canadian geese, each one weighing about 15 pounds and having a six-foot wingspan. So I'm going to read this morning a brief excerpt from this book of how he and his co-pilot, a guy by the name of Jeff, responded to the situation. This is from his book. And and as I read this, think about the idea of finding peace in the middle of the conflict or the chaos that you may find yourself in. 
As the birds hit the plane, it felt like we were being pelted by heavy rain or hail. It sounded like the worst thunderstorm I'd ever heard back in Texas. The birds struck the plane many places below the level of the windshield, including the nose, the wings, and the engines. The thuds came in rapid succession, almost simultaneously, simultaneously, but a fraction of a second apart. I had hit birds three or four times in my career, and they had never even dented the plane. This wasn't just a few small birds hitting the windshield or slapping hard against a wing and then falling to earth. I felt, heard, and smelled evidence that birds had entered the engines, both engines, and severely damaged them. Within a few seconds, Jeff and I felt a sudden, complete, and bilaterally symmetrical loss of thrust. It was like anything I'd ever experienced in a cockpit before. It was shocking and startling. There's no other way to describe it. I heard the noise of the engines chewing themselves up inside as the rapidly spinning, finely balanced machinery was being ruined with broken blades coming loose. I felt abnormal, severe vibrations. The engines were protesting badly. I'll never forget those awful, unnatural noises and vibrations. They sounded and felt bad. And then I just smelled a distinct odor, burning birds. The telltale air was being drawn from the engines into the cabin. The only remaining engine noise was kind of a rhythmic rumbling and rattling like a stick being held against moving bicycle spokes. It was a strange wind-billing sound from broken engines. If you've got more than 40,000 pounds of thrust pushing your 150,000-pound airplane uphill at a steep angle and the thrust suddenly goes away completely, well, it gets your attention. I could feel the momentum stopping and the airplane slowing. I sensed that both engines were winding down. If only one engine had been destroyed, the plane would be yawing, turning slightly to one side because of the thrust in the still working engine. But that didn't happen. So I knew very quickly that this was an unparalleled crisis. Within eight seconds of the bird strike, realizing that we were without engines, I knew that this was the worst aviation challenge I'd ever faced. It was the most sickening pit of your stomach falling through the floor feeling I'd ever experienced. I knew immediately and intuitively that I needed to be at the controls and Jeff needed to handle the emergency checklist. After I took control of the plane, two thoughts went through my mind, both rooted in disbelief. This can't be happening, and this doesn't happen to me. I was able to force myself to set those thoughts aside almost instantly. Given the gravity of this situation, I knew that I had seconds to decide on a plan and minutes to execute it. I was aware of my body. I could feel an adrenaline rush. I'm sure that my blood pressure and pulse spiked but I also knew I had to concentrate on the tasks at hand and not let the sensation in my body distract me. My guess is that if Sully were here today, he would resonate with that, that phrase I just said, that when a problem leads you to lose your peace, don't hurry to solve the problem in hopes of regaining it. Regain peace in order to help you solve the problem. Thankfully, he and his co-pilot chose peace. In our case, both Jeff and I clearly understood the gravity of our situation, and we were very concerned. Success would come if, at each juncture in the seconds ahead, we could solve the next problem thrown at us. Despite everything, the ruined plane, the sensations in my body, the speed with which we had to act, I had confidence that we could do it. 
in the cockpit, Jeff and I never made eye contact, but from the few words he spoke and his overall demeanor and body language, I had the clear sense that he was not panicked. He was not distracted. He was working quickly and efficiently. So while Jeff worked diligently to restart at least one engine, I focused on finding a solution. I knew we had fewer than a handful of minutes before our flight path would intersect the surface of the earth. I had a conceptual realization that unlike every other flight I'd piloted for 42 years, this one probably wouldn't end on a runway with the airplane undamaged. Right now, people are in the room on their phones, canceling that business trip that they were on this week. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to drive instead, not going to be flying. <laughs> I'd love to read the rest of that chapter. It goes into such detail, but the one thing that came across as I'm reading this chapter in this book is just the, the, the peace that these two individuals, this captain and his co-pilot, chose to embrace in the midst of such chaos. Whatever you're going through right now, you might say, Dave, you don't understand. What I'm going through is really ch-. If you're not trying to land a plane on the Hudson River, I think you're doing okay. <laughs> In that moment, they chose peace. And, and, and as you read that chapter, it's fascinating because Sully explains that there were two things that factored into the decisions that they made that meant that they landed safely on the river that day. The two things were that they went to the book So his co-pilot was reading what's called the QRH, the Quick Reference Handbook. It's a a handbook that every pilot has in the cockpit. And whenever anything happens, there is literally a page in the book you go to for that scenario. And you just start going page by page, item by item on this checklist. Because they went to the book, they were able to start working through that checklist. They went to the book and he says he tapped into his experience. His 42 years of flying gliders, jets in the Air Force, commercial airlines, all of that experience came into play in that moment. Every passenger survived because he went to the book and tapped into his experience. You know, as followers of Jesus, we can do exactly the same thing. When we face fear, when we face challenges, we can go to the book. We can read verses like I read earlier from Paul saying, don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all he's done. Then you'll experience God's peace. It's like an instruction manual. This is the checklist we work through if we want to experience God's peace in the midst of challenging times. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ. We can go to the book. We can tap into experience. We can look back on the times in our life where we went through difficult times. And and I don't know about you, but I do this. I, I look back and I can remember what it was like at the time. But when I look back, I'm amazed at how much I can see how God was in the midst of it. In the midst of those challenging times, I realize in hindsight, wow, I can see now how God was with me in the middle of that storm. He gave me that peace. He got me through it. That experience gives me the confidence and the faith and the peace to believe he'll be with me in this storm too. The book and the experience, they help us get through those moments when we choose peace. So we know that Jesus came to earth to bring peace. We know that was his mission. That's why God sent Jesus to bring peace. We know that um, it's a gift that he wants to give every one of us. 
we know that even though it's a gift, we still have to make a decision. We have to choose peace, especially in those moments where peace isn't an option. There's conflict, chaos. We have to choose peace. But here's the doing part of it. Why, why is this all important? Because I feel like as followers of Jesus, we also have the responsibility to take peace. That's what a peacemaker does. A peacemaker understands that Jesus brought peace, that he's given us peace, that, that we can choose peace, but we have a responsibility as peacemakers to take that peace to others. We have the responsibility as followers of Jesus in the world in which we live to, to, to be like a light shining to those around us who've not yet experienced the peace of Jesus. We take that peace everywhere we go. When we work, when we're at school, when we're around our friends or our neighborhood, we are taking the peace with us. Paul gives this excellent example. There's a, uh, a time he's writing to the Ephesian church and he's talking about the armor of God. He describes these characteristics that, like a soldier wearing armor, these are characteristics that God wants to give us in our life. And he lists them all. And, and he talks about the shoes. He says, for shoes, put on the readiness to preach the good news of peace with God. So much in that short sentence there. Put on the readiness to preach the good news. You know what the good news is? It's peace with God. That's great news. I've experienced it in my life. This peace that only God can give is great news. So like shoes, I'm going to choose to, to put them on and take that everywhere I go. Peacemakers take the good news of peace with God and they share it with everyone that they see. So how ready are you today? This is what a peacemaker does. I think this is what Jesus was getting at that day when he said, blessed are the peacemakers. They take peace to places where peace doesn't exist. We preach the good news of peace with God. And many times we don't even need to preach the good news. People will see God at work in our lives. They'll see the peace of God in us. It'll preach itself. We go into a dark world and we shine the light of Jesus to a place where people don't have hope or assurance or peace. And we put on our shoes and we take the peace to them. Just recently, Casey and I got to hear a wonderful story. It was a lady, uh, her family attend Connect Church now. They've been coming for about five or six years now. And um, wonderful lady. She's a leader here in the church. She was baptized here several years ago. Um, but she wasn't always a follower of Jesus. And we got to hear her story. We said, how was it that you came to find Jesus? How did you find your way to Connect Church and find yourself into a relationship with Jesus? She goes, well, I'll tell you. She said, I grew up in a home where uh, my parents took me to church and I believed in Jesus. But as I got older and went off to college, all these questions started to come up and I started to think, well, maybe that was just something that was for me as a kid. You know, she had a lot more questions and she thought, I'm not sure this is for me. She went through college, she got married, they had children. Her husband and her, neither one of them really pursued any kind of relationship with God. But then a few years ago, six, seven years ago, she lives here in Washington. She went to Washington High School, grew up here in town. God started to work in her life. She felt this draw and she was, she was asking questions. She says, I thought maybe some of it was like kids of my own. So I started to ask these questions, you know, about what if there is a God? What, what would that look like? Do I want to raise my kids uh, not to have the same experience that I had? So as she's asking these questions of herself, a good friend of hers, it's actually Whitney Clinky, one of our staff members. Um, she, uh, she had this experience. Her life was transformed and she could see the change in Whitney's life. And she started asking her some questions. But she said something else was going on at the same time. This lady was a teacher at East Peoria High School. 
And she said, it was amazing because I'm searching, I'm on this journey, I'm exploring things of God. And, and in my classes, I had students, some of whom were followers of Jesus and some of whom weren't. And I could see a difference. I could see something in these teenagers that were following Jesus that I didn't see in the others. There would be times where these students would debate one another in class, and you could tell that their faith was influencing the conversation. Some were very much against something, some were very much for something, and it was their faith that drove that decision. And she says, so I could tell who the Jesus followers were and who the ones weren, and there was just something about the ones that followed Jesus, this peace, this love, that, that I started to feel like, that's what I want. That's what I want in my life. Little did she know that these teenagers who are actually a part of Connect Church, I know a couple of them, and they're brilliant. One of the young ladies was here this morning. She's in college now. And I said, did you realize that was you I was talking about? She goes, well, I'd heard the story, she said, but I still don't remember what I said or did. I said, I know, but what you don't realize is that the peace of Jesus was just shining out of you. Jesus was using your life to influence a teacher, and you had no idea. I came up with kind of a working definition of today's Beatitudes to kind of sum it all up for you. The idea of what it means to be a, a peacemaker, the blessing of being a peacemaker, it's this. We are most like God's children of God. We are most like God when we are taking the wholeness and completeness found in him into a world that desperately needs it. We are most like God when we are taking the wholeness and the completeness found in him into a world that desperately needs it. I think that's what a peacemaker is. Somebody who has understood what it means to, to have peace, wholeness, completeness, and to share that, to live our lives in such a way that others look on saying, I want what they've got. So my question to you as we close out this morning is, will you take his peace with you this week? Will you choose his peace? Will you take it with you when you go? Will you live as a peacemaker? Because if you do, I honestly believe you'll be recognized for who you truly are, and that is a child of God. Let's pray. Father, it's our desire to be children of God. And you clearly define here what that looks like to be a child of God, to be somebody who embraces the peace that can only be found in you. That, that chooses it in the times where it's hard to, to fathom what we're going through, but we choose peace. And as a result, your light shines through us into the lives of others. Let us be peacemakers this week. Let us take the peace that can only be found in you into the world in which we live, whether we're going to school or work or our neighborhoods or our families. Let us take your peace with us, making peace around us as your light shines through us. We pray this in Jesus' name.